From the fairy tales of Shrek comes the legendary cat with nine lives. Bruce and Boots, how many times have you died already? I am not really a math guy. You are down to your last life. Legend tells of a wishing star. That star could get me my lives back. Get it off, boss. I need your help. Is the great Pooh in Boots asking for help? <laughs> Kitty, please. Yeah! Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I am Puss in Boots. In cinemas February 3. Oh my goodness. I've watched Mike's podcast on James English. Meet Rack Boy. We've interviewed Anna Breeze. And Mike's come highly recommended. They've got a book out together called The Meat Rack Boy. And in the description box below this video, you can click over and you can find that book worldwide on Amazon. I urge you to read it. It's all going to a good cause. I'm going to get to that. We have never done a podcast interview in a hospital before. So if you're not watching the video version of this, if it's audio only, please bear with us. There's going to be a few little sounds in the background, the, the bed vibrating, etc. But it's absolutely crucial that we came here today to interview Mike. I mean, I was in tears watching your interview with James English and the purity of your soul after everything you've been through and how you said at the end of it, you were happier than you've ever been in your life. You're here now, you're telling us you've not got much longer and you wanna make a mark on the world, get this message out to people. Um, let's just, should we just begin at the, at the very beginning then? How? How you, how you grew up. You said, you just telling me how, you, how to pronounce your surname, Tarragon? Yeah, it's Tarragon. But before, I, I just want to make it abundantly clear. I'm not here because I'm snuffing it. I'm here because I've had a fucking stroke, right, that's left me paralysed down the left side. Never going to come back, but I am going home next week and carers are going in. So to anybody who sees this, I am alive, if not kicking. <laughs> and, um, you know, I hope that you find it interesting what I have to say. But, go on. You are com compulsively watchable, your voice, the way you speak, and your spirit, after the horror of what you get, went through, you know, you, your, your spirit and your determination just shines right through. And it's, as soon as I saw you on James English and heard your voice, I was like, I was just, I was just glued. I don't know about glued. It, it's strange because it took a long time to get the story out. But I'll, I'll start at the beginning. You know, I, I, I don't care. My mum was a prostitute. It's after the war. She went to London to hawk her mutton, make some money. She came from the west coast of Scotland. And I only ever met her once, but, and I'll tell you more later on what happened. The old man, Mario, was a spick. Spaniard, fought against Franco, served in the Foreign Legion a long time, was a tow rag. And I have a twin brother who's dead. I have a year older sister also dead. And I'm a firm believer that we are the result of a couple of nights on the piss. No more, because the old man took off. He didn't want to see us. And when my brother and I were born, Mother took off, and it, from what I see the photograph of my brother, it's blatantly obvious that I was a better-looking one. And I'm an ugly fucker now, but <laughs> she left us. We were abandoned. My sister was already in care, and we were taken into care. And that 
is the sum total of my birth. So you were born into Kerr? Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Only the care that I received wasn't exactly the care that I would want anyone else to receive. You know, so the first three years we were separated and four years. And we only came together at London Coney, 1952, I believe it is, or 53. We have a record that the authorities, I would lift both fingers to put it in Parthenesia, but I can't. It, we, we were taken into um, care under the 1948 Children's Act, where the authorities had full legal and parental rights. And we went, we'd taken all three on the same day to Boreham Wood, to what was charmingly known as family home. This was kind of kids' home, but allegedly run on family lines. There were seven kids there when we joined, but it could hold up to 12, and they were all long-term. So it was a type of fostering that was going on, you know, and um, was there for a while. What are your earliest memories of being in Kerr? Being the first night being put in a kitchen sink and having Bob Woods, who I had to call Daddy, putting his digit up my arse and telling me he was cleaning, washing me. How old? Four. Oh. It was my first night from the nursery in Boreham Wood. Jesus. My brother and sister had been put to bed. I'd been put into the kitchen sink, a Belfast sink, to be bathed and given a... Told me I was having a brand new pair of pyjamas. I didn't know what your pyjamas were, you know. And suddenly there was a digit up the gearbox, which, you know, very painful. I didn't know what it was. It made me cry, if I remember right, quite a lot. And the abuse then started on a regular basis. And when I say regular, three, four, five times a day. And then being passed around, taken to aunties and uncles in various places. And there was nothing I could do, you know, although it's documented that I did run away and went to the police, ran to the police in the middle of winter in the slush, barefoot, wearing a little pair of Y-front type pants and a vest. And the police said, he's in need of discipline and was returned back to... Graveney Avenue, Borenwood, to the woods. How old were you when you went to the police? Can you remember approximately? Six. All right, so you're saying the abuse started at four. How on earth does a four-year-old's mind comprehend what's going on? I didn't know that it was abuse. Yeah. But it was hurting. I was hurting. I couldn't go to school because my backside was bleeding at times. And I used to get beaten, hurt beaten with a wooden spoon, which they made me go and get. You know, every word. I had nothing, no toys, no nothing. And my brother and sister were kept away. But, see, I was a sulky child. I, I didn't, my brother, as a, as a youngster, I weren't interested in my brother. I wasn't interested in my sister, you know. And I came home and they'd gone. When I say home, 
I'd been to school, Somerswood School, Bournemouth, and I came home, no brother and sister there. They're gone. And I was kept behind, and, oh, this went on for some time. Abused every day. There is an eight-millimeter film of where they wanted me... Well, they did. They filmed me doing things to my sister, but things I didn't understand what was going on, you know? And she didn't, because she was only a year older, and it was just after that she was moved to... And my brother Mario was moved to... um, all Saints Convent to St. Gabriel's kids' home. And they were there. And I joined them a few years later, but in St. Raphael's. And we never, the only time we ever met was on high days and holidays, church days. And that, that was when, when we met. But um, I didn't really know them. And when I learned that they died many, many years later. I couldn't grieve them. How could I? I didn't know who they were. You know, I do believe I... I read it in the paper, in fact, my brother had been killed and I might have raised a glass to someone I didn't know but had my name. And my sister, I couldn't grieve her, didn't know her. But she was murdered, so... Jesus. From age four to six, how many people were participating in the abuse? Oh, Christ, it was hundreds. I was taken to Eastbourne. I was taken to London. I was taken to Pimlico, to the three aunties' house. You know, I was being sold. So this was a paedophile Le- ring. Oh, man. Christ, yeah. Taken to the meat rack in Piccadilly, which still exists today. In fact, I went back with Signote, my pal, and we drove down a couple of years ago because I, I went to Lambeth to confront Lambeth. And... Um, we went down and I said to Sickno, his name's Ian, I said, look, I'm going to show you something. And it was the tube station, but the Wimpy Bar has gone. Playland, the arcade, has gone. But I said, that is where they used to stand us up and people used to come and pick us up. Not just me. There was lots and lots of children. Because you have to remember, post-war Britain, there were thousands of kids who had nobody, right? The parents had either been killed, bombed out, or just disappeared. And it was a different world, a total, total different world. And it was kind of um, strange. If you disappeared, who the hell was going to know you'd gone, you know? And I've no doubt that kids did disappear, although... I never saw any child murdered. I saw beatings, many beatings, but I never saw any child murdered, you know, and it it was a strange, strange world. We had no one to complain to, you know, and I became a very dab hand at stealing a florin or half a crown. Once I stole a a 10-shilling note, which... Oh, God, I thought I was a bloody millionaire. And that was spent on consulate cigarettes and a bottle of bloody Tizer, you know, which, and licorice. And I couldn't spend it. It was too much to spend. But, you know, these things, you went with the flow. What, what decade is this that you're talking the 50s. about? The 50s. The 50s. We're talking about the 50s. And you said 
the meat rack and you top the book title is the meat rack boy and that is in the description box below this video if you want to get the book please click down and support what Mike and Anna are doing could you explain exactly what the meat rack means specifically we the kids who were being sold there we were known as chickens fresh chickens the younger you were the more valuable you were. People wanted fresh ass. They didn't want old, well-worn ass. And once you'd hit a certain age, you were no good, right? And what, they what went- What age was that? 11, 12, you know, you were, still, you were still good, but you were a kind of cheaper commodity if that makes sense. But as a fresh-faced four, five, six-year-old, right, and having a look at my face, obviously it wasn't that fresh, but I was, I was available. I was young and could be manipulated very, very easily. And hence where you went, where you were taken, the meeting place in Piccadilly Circus, the railing became known as the meat rack. And it was known worldwide as the meat rack. And if people wish to Google the meat rack, Piccadilly, they'll see how far, but you'd be taken from there. And it might be for half an hour, for an hour. I mean, there were times when I was taken away for weekends and just passed around in a house. You know, I'd wake up in different beds. And th this went on in the kids' homes the kids' homes in London, your Shirley Oaks, your Hollies, Liscard Lodge, Stanford House, were hotbeds of paedophilia. And I don't know, paedophilia, I, I dislike the word because I don't understand the word. They were abusers, pure and simple, sexual de deviants. But... The councils didn't care as long as they had people to run these places. So they didn't care who was they were employing, you know. And once you've been had once, within a week the word was round. Very quickly. And people would buy for the young boys. And they didn't care how many times you'd been used a night as long as they could have a bit. And it's like sharing a Kentucky box of chicken nuggets today. Only this was sexual. We were the chicken nuggets. And um, I couldn't for 60 years, 50, 60 years, until I, I wrote the first book, The Uncouth Lout. How could you tell anyone you can't? A, because no one believes you. And B, you're ashamed. It is a shameful thing. I wrecked four marriages. I've ruined many, many people's lives. I have hurt both physically and mentally. Many, many people. And I ended up in a lunatic asylum. Not so long ago, because of it. I was a rotten... 
13 years ago, you wouldn't have spoken to me. You'd have done a big body swerve. I spent years in jail. I loathed the police for not believing me. I went to the press on many occasions. A, to tell my story at the time, because I needed money. I had no money. I had nothing. You know, I, I had no respect for myself or for anyone else. I was just on a huge, huge wave of destruction. And it took a lunatic asylum to bring me to my senses and a desire eventually, 12 years ago in 2008, to decide I didn't want to do drugs anymore. And I went cold turkey. Probably the best move I ever made because as a drug addict, you can't tell the truth. But once that's out of you and you're clean, and I'd met Georgie, of course the truth comes out. And I told Georgie, who's a bird by the way, not a geezer in case you're wondering. I told her my story, she, was, she had nothing. We were both potless. And she just said to me, tell it, tell your story. And I'd had an accident at sea, got some compensation, and I spent the best part of 10 grand writing my story, and I, I entitled it The Successful Failure because I was a successful failure, very successful failure, and um, subtitled The Uncouth Lout because someone once called me that. And I wrote it, got a ghostwriter called Alec Price to make some sense of it, and which he did. I paid for it to be printed, 500 copies. And I said to the people in Fleetwood where I live, I want you to read this for donation to a charity. Don't give me the money. It's going to go to a charity. And for what cost, probably seven grand at the end of the day to get out, we raised 600 quid for the charity, which to me was wonderful because that was 600 quid that the charity would not have got, right? It was money that I didn't need to print it because Georgie and I have everything we want. We have each other. And then I met Anna and hence Meet Rat Boy. She, we, she said to me, we can't call this the successful failure. She said, give me an address. I said, Meat Rack Boy, because I was the boy on the Meat Rack. And that is how the book came to be. It's a brilliant title, and I, for one, I'm going to donate some money to this charity. I'm going to urge people out there who are watching this to click down in the description box and support what you are and Anna are doing. I don't get a penny. To the of their ability. Yeah, it's going to Anna explain it. We've done a previous podcast with Anna. If you guys haven't seen that yet, that podcast is in the description box below this video, it should be published by now. And she explained um, the money was going to help victims and all this other stuff. Yeah, people tell their story, which is um, the best thing, because I had never, ever come across anyone who had told their story the way I was telling mine. I'm sure I've read books of abuse and 
homosexuality. And I hated, absolutely loathed puffs. And I'm sorry to use that word, but, you know, no man was ever, ever going to come near me or put a hand on me, whether it would be to just touch me on the shoulder, give me a friendly hug. It didn't matter whether they were friends or not. It wasn't going to happen. And for years, years, it was always a belief. What are they after? And I suppose in a way I was frightened that I might become a puff. I mean, I've been called a puff. I've been called a gobbler. Horrible word. People used to sing when I was young, you know, a teenager in Boston and the turkey trot. And it just got into the head. But today, I have gay friends. You know, I don't like the word gay because I can't see anything gay about throwing a lump up someone's gearbox. But there you go. As long as they don't make it compulsory, I don't care, you know. And, and they don't do it in front of me. What they do behind closed doors is up to them. But I've got many, many homosexual friends, both male and female. And I'll shake their hands and I will share a cup of tea, invite them into my home or a beer or a joint. Well, not a joint now because obviously... Like this, I can't roll a fucking joint, can I? <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, it's out. The hatred has gone. And, um, yeah, I, I can snuff it. Knowing that I'm happy. Relaxed. You've gone through such horrific things that a lot of people wouldn't have survived, Mike. You're extremely brave. I think they have to believe it. And that was one of the reasons that when I decided to do the book, I wanted it to be an honest part of me. And I did not want one penny from it. Because if I'd received any money, and I've been told and asked, why don't I go crowdfunding? to raise money for a lawyer to take Lambeth to court, you know, or to raise money for Georgia and I, right? A friend of, a chap who's become a friend of mine, Danny Kerr, in London, only on Facebook, he said to me, I've watched your interviews. He said, Do you, is there anywhere in the world that you would like to go? My whole... I would love to go back to the Falkland Islands, right? I enjoyed my time there. I loved it there. Met some fantastic people there. Obviously, they didn't know my story up until now. And he said, I'll pay for you to go, which was a wonderful, wonderful offer. And it was a genuine offer. I'd met the guy since. He came to this hospital room a couple of weeks ago to see me, and we had a long chat a lot of laughter and smiles. And no, if I accepted any money or a gift for telling my story, I might as well go out there and sell my ass all over again. And it ain't going to happen. Going back to your story then, 
you've put in my mind now, going back to the 50s, that this was a highly organised thing. So in this day and age, people hook up through the internet. There was no such technology back then. Who was orchestrating it and who was profiting from it? How, how did the um, business run and how did they get customers? It was word of mouth. And homosexuality and boy abuse. And I, I can't speak for women, but for boys, there's always been ways and means. And I, I honestly don't know how it all started. All I know is that I was taken and it happened. The first time was Bob Woods at Boreham Wood. And that went on in the house for months. But he would bring, men would turn up and he would say, oh, this is Paddy or this is Grandad. And they had an office down on the ground floor. And with the men, that's where it would happen. You know, and it'd be different people. But obviously those people were going away and going, oh, there's a fresh chicken there. Ring. But Bob and Ivy had a telephone. And they also had a car which not many people had in those days. And the people who were doing the abuse were wealthy, suited people. I'm not saying they were the Lord Boothbys of the area, of the time, the era, sorry, not the area, but they were certainly managerial people, you know, civil servants, Welfare officers, etc. And welfare officers later on would take me out for the day, ostensibly, to go and have a day out. Only I was having a day in, in some bastard's bed. You know, and men would come. If I was going out for an afternoon with them, we'd take them to a house. It would be four or five men. It'd be like a little queue. They'd be in the back room having tea and tiffin, and the bloke with me would be having arse and me, <laughs> you know. I was like the cocktail of the, of the room. It, and I think that's a fair description, because I was the icing on the cake. They didn't come for tea. They'd come for me. And then it, it progressed. I'd be taken to Eastbourne, or be taken to... Pimlico, to the, to the Three Aunts, which was a bloody big imposing place. In fact, if you looked at it today, you'd think it was a funeral director's, you know, the velvet drapes and the vela wallpaper and all this shite. And that is how it went on. And of course, they'd tell their friends. And so it, the circle, what had started as a full stop, suddenly became a bloody big roundabout. And that's what it was. You were just on a roundabout that you couldn't get off because you weren't allowed off. And it was only when I went to the nautical school in Paulie's Head that it ended. You know, and... Um, Before we get to that then, was it the case that when you're out of foster home like that, they're getting money from the government to take care of you? Yes. So they're profiting from that 
and then they're profiting from the sex ring yeah. as well. Oh yeah, we we have it documented that um, part of the care. <laughs> Sorry. What are you? No, no, you're right. Part of the um, care order for me, after my brother and sister had gone, was that under no circumstances was I to be removed from the house with the express permission of the authorities. Right? A surprise visit was made by a welfare officer to the house. I wasn't there. Now, I have this on a, the record, right? And um, when the welfare officer asked where I was, the deputy house mistress, house mother, said, oh, Michael has gone away with Bob and Ivy for three days because he's been naughty, and we don't know when he'll be back. And in the next sentence, it says he will be back in three days. Right? I had been taken away, not because I'd been naughty. I'd been taken away to be naughty. And that was the first time that I was taken to Eastbourne. And nothing was ever, there was no follow-up as to why I'd gone. There is no follow-up. There is no record of anything being said after that. So nobody knows how long I was away for. I say it was more than three days, right? But when I went to try and get my records, I've got my brothers and sisters from Lambeth eventually, right, of what went on with them. But everything pertaining to me is redacted or is held under the 100-year rule. What does the 100-year rule mean? That they can't open the record for 100 years from when it was written. Why would it have that level of security? Because they know it's documented. It has to be documented that I wasn't there. It has to be documented somewhere that they knew exactly what was going on. And it is also documented, has to be documented amongst it, that it wasn't just the working class who were involved in this. This, this was high up people, police officers, judges, and that ilk of people, MPs, you know, and... I can't say the names because I don't know them. The only name I know of note, and I didn't know who he was at the time, was Edward Heath, who I was introduced on the boat as Uncle Teddy. You know, and I didn't... Teddy? Who bloody hell's Teddy? You know... And it didn't occur to me for years who the bloody hell he was. And the boat wasn't morning cloud, right? So, and you, you can equate, but headmasters from private public schools and every single home 
that I was sent to. Now, I was an obnoxious purse child. I really kicked against the system. I would steal. I would lie. I would fight. And as a consequence, I was moved about. I mean, the records show the different homes that I was moved to. And the times, as I got older, that I appeared in the juvenile courts. But it doesn't tell you of what went on in those places. You know, it just says he was there and then gone. And it was because I was being used. You know, no more. I know it sounds ridiculous and it sounds totally untrue. But you have to ask yourself, why are the records redacted, for starters, yet my brother and sister? Why does Ambeth admit that my brother and sister were under their care, yet I'm not, yet we were all taken at the same time and all under the same care order? Yet Lambeth don't accept this. They say no. I have a full apology, a written apology from the chief executive of Lambeth who says he is sorry that they did not give me the care that I was entitled to and they did not listen to me. Yet in another statement he denies that I was ever one of theirs. Why give me an apology in the first place? When the Lambeth redress, the Shirley Oaks redress scheme came out, Lam- it was done in two, two parts. The halfway, I think they call it, the maximum, if you were there over six months, the maximum you could get was 10 grand, right, for that six months. And it went from a thousand pound if you were there for one day to 10 grand, right? And then there was another part where it scaled right up. And at first they offered me a thousand quid and I told them to go fuck themselves. And I had a real, real go at them. Within three days, they changed it to 10 grand. But they said I was only there for one day. They changed it to 10 grand. And when I asked them why, and that was that 10 grand I used to write the book, by the way. When they changed it, to 10 grand, they said, oh, because we sympathise with your position. I had lung cancer. I still have lung cancer. I've got cancer in the mouth. I've got a bollock missing, right? I'm just a wreck, a total wreck right now. I have never in my life heard of a council giving someone 10 grand because they're sympathetic to his situation. Right? It doesn't make sense. Yet, the guy who... See, Lambeth, con artist, very, very clever. The guy who was doing all the business with the insurer, with the claims for compensation, didn't tell me. For two years, we spoke. Every day on the phone. Didn't tell me he was making the decisions. But he was. And he did. And he's the guy who said, yes, you do this, you do that, blah, blah, blah. And then turned me down flat. And said, you weren't one of us. Weren't one. And it, 
And I get so, so angry about it. And that's why, you know, I do need, my story does need to come out. The only place that I didn't get abused was when they eventually sent me to the convent. Before we get to that, then I just want to clarify a few things. So you've mentioned Ted Heath. A lot of my viewers are in America, a lot of them are young people. They probably don't even know who Ted Heath is. He became Prime Minister. Prime Minister of the country. Ted Heath became the Prime Minister of the country. And you've looked at the work we've done with Sonia Poulton, the paedophiles in Parliament, and this is a classic example of that at the highest level of politics in this country. And we have Michael's testimony now of he was a victim of Ted Heath. The police have stated, Sean, that if he was alive today, they would question him under caution. So they believe, they know, they know exactly what he was. This was a guy who was single, was a choir master, <laughs> said it all. You know what I mean? So he's around boys all the time. And I'm not going to say he was a nasty piece of work because he didn't beat me up. You know, they asked me on the boat, go swimming, go naked, right? And I did it. I loved it, going naked. But afterwards, he took me into the little cabin, the saloon on this thing, where he dried me. You know, and um, fiddled about and kissed me willy and all that nonsense and had me do the same to him. And really, it was a case of, well, if I don't do it, I'm in the shit here. Yeah? If I do do it, I might get a fag and half a crown. And that's what happened. I might have got half a crown off him and a fag. I got, well, I had my own roll-ups, which I wasn't allowed to have at the time, but I had them because it was school holidays. So I just sat on the arse end of the boat and had a roll-up. Where was the boat? Pin Mill. We didn't sail. It was at anchor. Well, on a buoy, actually, at Pin Mill, where it remained. We went out to it in a small boat, a rowing boat, and sat there. They might have had a beer or whatever, and I'd done a bit of swimming. The only reason I was there is because all the other kids were at school. It was Chafford School at Ramsey in Harwich. And there was me. There was a guy called Max Sharman, who was a deputy headmaster of the school, and a doctor. And Ted Eve. And that was it. it. You know, it was no big deal. It, it was just one of thousands. But he was one of the last to ever have anything to do with me. A, because I think I was too old, you know, and B, because I was starting to um, be a bit of an arsehole and fighting the system and running away and whatever. And um, it, it slowly, slowly came to an end. When you say you were too old, over what age were you, ages were you when Heath was abusing you? 13, 14. 
Now I've interviewed an ex-Scotland Yard detective called John Wedger and he said that there was a whole community of paedophiles on the canals in boats because if you move a dress you've got 60 days or something like that to report but if you keep changing your little area of London on the canal it keeps reactivating 60 days and you don't ever have to report yourself. This is in the 60s? Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? The early 60s. 1961, some 62, somewhere around that mark. And um, I can't remember the dates off my mind because I'm addled with drugs because of my condition. And obviously the strokes left me a little bit sloppy in the head. But it's in the records of the period, the times. You know what I mean? The records that I have, the school records. So, you know, this, everything I'm telling you can be verified. And, but to go back to Boreham Wood, and I'm sorry I'm jumping backwards and forwards because what's going on in my head is quite hard to put into the right orders. But my brother and sister had gone to the convent and the Woods wanted to adopt me. And I had a welfare officer come down and talk to me privately in an office. And she told me her name, if I remember right, was Babette Denya. Her husband, Peter, was a police officer. And I must have told her that I didn't want to be adopted, didn't want to stay with the woods, and that things were happening because it's documented, we have it written, right, in one of the few written records that we have, that Ivy Woods burst, she must have been there with her ear to the door, because she burst the door open and said, he's lying, he's telling lies, he always lies. And not long after that, I was moved to the convent, where was probably the happiest days of my childhood. I was only there for a short time because I couldn't hack the love that the nuns were giving me. There was no violence. Yeah, I used to get caned. I mean, I remember one, I'd stolen some money from them. And I remember Sister Helen giving me six across the arse and then and bear in mind, Sister Helen was the best part of six foot and looked like a bloody penguin. The long <laughs> habits, etc. I've got pictures of her, right? And she, after she caned me, and it didn't hurt because she was a bloody woman, you know what I mean? She gave me a big hug and said, do you know something, Peter? Because I was called Peter then, Michael Peter, or Peter Michael. She said... God loves you, she said, but I don't like you right now. That stuck. But I couldn't hack it. And they sent me away. My behaviour, it's where she was the one who called me an uncouth, an uncouth lout. Right? And I couldn't hack the warmth, the love, I'd never had that before. 
you know, and I would steal from anybody and I would bully anybody. The kids, didn't matter who it was. And they sent me to Liscard Lodge in Blackheath, Liscard Gardens, Liscard Lodge. And the first night there, a member of staff, a member of staff shagged me royally in the playroom. And I thought, you know, here we go. And this happened five, six, seven times. I was then moved to the Hollies. They decided I was maladjusted and was going to go to a school called Heathermount and they were in Ascot, Sunningdale, and they were waiting for a place to come available. And um, they sent me to the Hollies where every night, every single night, and I'd be taken out of this fucking place. And it would happen every day, every night. I would run away. They would send a member of staff. I always ran away to Margate. I don't know why. No money for it. But you could get on a train at Sidcup, get off at Margate, and fuck off through the parcel place, open gate. And I used to go on the bit to see, ostensibly, to find a bit of peace in my head, I suppose, and to see what I could steal. Go around the arcade, see what you could nick. But I would always get caught. And they would send a member of staff from the Hollis Furs house, right? Pop Byford was the house father. And it was part of Lammerby Homes. But run by a council. But because I was a Lambeth child, Lambeth were financing it. If that financing me there. And this was in the days when you had um, the train carriages were compartments and they'd have a door either side to get straight onto the platform. There was no corridor running down. And the member of staff would find one with nobody in it and you could pull the thing down, the screen, and you could lock the doors. And for the hour that it took, all sorts went on. And it, it was a case of you either do it or when you get back to the home, back to the hollies, back to furs, you are going to get battered senseless. And I think it was a case of um, which of the pain did I want to endure. It doesn't hurt to give a blowjob, you know. It didn't hurt then to be buggered but it did hurt to be punched. And I think I took the lesser of the painful rather than get filled in because I was a bit of a wuss in them days. Still, I don't like pain. But um, that's how it went on. And I kept running away and I went, they kept sending me to other schools and until Heathermount. Before we go to Heathermount, you say when you were four to six, you didn't comprehend what was happening, you just knew there was a pain and a bad feeling. Yeah. When was the point when you started to understand what was happening? Oh, Christ. Um, probably after the convent. 
something around now, around Heaven Morning. Yeah. yeah, after the convent. And what was going through your head when you were realising what was happening? If I don't go with the flow, I'm going to get hurt badly. And at one stage, I thought to myself, if I don't do what they, this clown wants, I'm going to get killed. Why, and on that particular occasion, did you think you were going to get killed? Because the bloke had me by the throat and kissing me and on top of me. And I thought, and suddenly he just let go and said, suck my dick. And I, oh, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, am I going to get, so I did. And I, I, I remember it. He just said to me, that's better than having your throat ground handled, you know, or words to that effect. He said, that doesn't hurt, does it? And now I, I knew, I knew then that this was the way it was going to be. And you're in care, you can't get out of it. And everywhere I went, they knew every single home because they knew I was going there. They knew that I was a problem. And it, it actually stopped when I went to the nautical school in Portishead. Head. How old were you then? 14. And um, how did it stop? Well, I got sent there by the courts, right? It wasn't so much an approved school, but it was a school where if you wanted to go to sea, right, and you were a kid in care, the child panel of the day could send you and they would finance it, right? And I arrived and Captain John Campbell, he said the fir first evening, I was out on the grounds and he came up, he said, ah, you're the new boy. I said, yeah. And he said, you smoke? I said, yes. He said, a filthy habit and gave me 10 Woodbine or park number six. I think it was number six. And I said to him, I looked at him and he's in uniform, a four ringer. And I said to him, what do you want? And he said, listen, young man, we know your history. He said, I'll tell you what I want. He said, I want you to make something. He said, I want you to make something of your life. And walked away. He said, go on, away you go. And um, I knew then it was over. That's amazing, mate. Come here, give me a hug. Give me a hug, man. Yeah. It was, um, although I didn't. Oh, God. But 
I didn't make anything in my life. I fucked up. But I met a guy there called Alan Warren. Now, this is in 1964, I believe. And strangely enough, out of the blue, he rang me two days ago, three days ago. Right, out of the blue. And he said to me, I had to laugh. He said to me, you bastard, you owe me 20 quid. And he was what we called a tug. And it was his job to show me as a new kid the ropes there. Never, ever, after he left, he joined the army. When I left, I went to sea. This is in the days of the seamen's strike, right? So instead of going to sea, he went to the army. He then became a police inspector, right? And served his time after the army as a police inspector. And right out of the blue, this week, this guy saw my name on Facebook, said there's only one Michael Tarragon, and sent a friend's request. This is God's honest truth. I can show it to you on the phone. And he then said, you, I, I accepted. He immediately rang me up and we spoke for the best part of two hours on a video call. And we speak every day. Brilliant. Every single day. And, you know, he said to me yesterday, he read the book yesterday. He said, if you had told me, he said, I would have helped you. But how do you tell someone? You can't. You know, and suicide. Phew was a very, very attractive option along the way. Many a time when I, when I went to sea, I'm a bit of an arse, you know, because um, I used to wander at night along the, to the arse end of the ships that I was on and go, shall I? Because at night time, you want to take the long walk, you ain't going to be found. You know what I mean? No one knows you're gone. And I used to look at the water and I think, fuck that, I don't want to be cold and wet before I snuff it. So I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because I'm here. And um, the story couldn't come out. You know, and I firmly, firmly believe today, and I don't mean today physically, that meeting Georgie and being put in a lunatic asylum, and I was put in a lunatic asylum because I wanted to cut the throat of a woman over three fucking pilchards. In fact, I had her up the wall with the biggest knife in the kitchen, telling her, pick the window you want your body to go out because your head's going out the other fucker. And then I realised, well, hold on. And I got nutted off, and I met Georgie, and, um, yeah, I think I'm kind of stable now. You know, my story's out. People do know who I am. They can make their own judgment whether I'm an arse or whether they think I'm telling fucking lies. I couldn't give a toss, you know. If they wanted lies, I would have charged a lot of money for this, for interviews and for the book. And nobody would have got a bean. But 
by doing it this way, a lot of people are now telling their story. But that's down to Anna and her expertise and the fact that she believed me, the first one. You know, and um, it goes on today. I know it goes on today. But my hope, my real hope is that the nonces of today, one of them reads the book and it changes him. Because it does destroy lives. It destroys lives while you're living a life. You know, and um, yeah, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible affliction. You've got this guardian angel in your life. Well, I don't believe in God. Me and God don't speak. God did not appear to me in a fucking prison cell wearing a bowler out in a pinstripe suit. Thank you very much. You've got this guy who comes into your life who helps you. After all these people have harmed you, the people who've harmed you, are they still trying to get their grips back on you? No, they're dead. No, no. When this guy comes into your life to help you when you go over to the new place and you, and you stop being abused at that point in your life, were the people who, was, who had harmed you at that point in your life, were they still trying to get their grips on you or did they just let you go? Um, well, I never went home. I never had any home leave. I stayed at the school and at Portishead, uh, the Nautical, National Nautical School during leave period. Uh, but when I did go on leave, I asked to go back to the convent for the leave. And the fact that I was going back in a uniform was, it gave me a respectability, you know, and... Um, it was strange because I used to go and you'd get on a bus or you'd be walking down the street and the old girls would go touch a sailor's collar for luck. You know what I mean? And it, it gave me, yeah, quite a lot of respectability. But I blew it because I'm the bloody idiot, pissed up, went and joined the Foreign Fucking Legion. Not once, but twice. <laughs> you know? And had a career fishing. I bared my arse to the governor of Blunderstone Jail every day for three years just to annoy him. I refused point blank to be in a cell with someone else. I had to be on my own because I didn't trust myself or anyone. You know, and, and that was the way I, I intended to live. And, but it wasn't a nice way of living. You know, and... As I say, I used and abused mentally and physically and hurt an enormous amount of people and no amount of apologising or saying sorry to them can undo that. But I really, really do hope that by getting my story out and it's had a bloody good reception on Facebook and YouTube and Google that people will understand that I didn't mean to hurt them but I couldn't help myself you got the chaos inside you from the abuse you know, the abuse and the drugs but they realised that inside is a half sensible quite sensitive human being you know, and I 
Today, I'm extremely, extremely proud of the bloke I am, the bloke I became. That does fill me with immense pleasure, you know, and the fact that I can look after Georgie and I can look people straight in the eye and know full well that I can trust myself to be trusted by them. You know, I let my son, my son is a killer. He's in jail. And I let him down extremely badly. You know, he's a drug addict, a dirty, rotten, filthy. Well, he's me, a mini me. And that hurts. And there's nothing I can do about that. Because right now he doesn't listen. One day he will. You know, I hope that I'm alive when he does. But I doubt it. I've got, oh, I haven't got a year left, I know that. You know, if I can see Chelsea win the Champions League again, I'll be happy, you know. But if I went today, I know full well that for the last 12 years I've done my best. And it's worked for me. You know, I might look fucking stupid. I might wear an earring, 70-year-old with long hair, you know, and I swear like a troop and I couldn't give a toss. <laughs> I really couldn't. People either accept me or they don't. I make no apologies at all. But I hope, and if I was a God-fearing man, which I'm not, that they understand the reasons why I became what I did. And you really conveyed to me the impossibility of breaking out of that trap that they had you in, because what you described is you get put into car, you get abused, of course you're going to act up if you've been abused, yep. then they use the fact that you're behaving wayward to ruin your credibility if you try and inform on them. Yep. So the woman at the door, she, you know, you're informing her and she's just coming around, you're a liar, you're a liar, you're a liar, you know, he's out stealing, whatever. Yeah. And they use that then against you so nobody will listen to you. So those kids are absolutely trapped. But, you see, when a police officer doesn't listen to a child, there is something wrong. Today, I hope they do. But as is proven in the Rochdale and the other places where the girls are being bought and sold and abused... The police aren't listening. Nobody's listening. And the only way that people are going to listen is by doing this, right? Telling your story straight into a camera. The social media today is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it's also a bastard. Because if what's happening to me is still going on, which I believe it is, the dark web is horrible, you know. But if by doing this, one, one child does not go through what I went through, then it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. And I really couldn't give a toss if people, journalists so-called, like Rosie Webster... Or Waterhouse, Rosie Waterhouse, that's her name, private eye, want to call me a liar. Please come and do it 
in front of a lawyer because I will have you in court so fast because you've, she's never spoken to me in any shape or form. She just came out, right, and said I was a liar, right? But she's never came back after I threatened to put her to court. Now, we had one guy said, oh, I launched into a foul mouth rant of abuse at her. Dead right I did. And I'll do it again. Rosie fucking Waterhouse, fuck off. There you go. Talk to me. You think I'm a liar? Talk to me. Tell me where I've lied and I'll show you the records where I haven't. She, that, she did a hit piece, didn't she? She said there was some kind of agenda behind that wasn't there for private eye. Yeah. yeah. And, but uh, they never I, ever I, came I, I back. You mentioned something about that. She was involved in it, wasn't Yeah, she? they never came back to me, you know. So I think they realised that they were wrong. I hope they did. You know, I don't want to rant and rave at her or swear at her. But if you're going to go round and print the kind of crap that she prints about people, get your facts right, you know, and talk to the people that you're printing the lies about. Because everything I have said about what happened to me is documented. I could tell you bundles of stuff that isn't do documented because the records are redacted or hidden under the 100-year-old, the 50-year-old, you know, where you can't get at them. And when you have the London Metropolitan Archives issuing a document and it says, this is where you were, these are the homes you were in at such and such a time, and they don't tally with the official record, you know full well there's a big, big, big cover-up somewhere. And I would like Lambeth. You know, I'm not going to beg Lambeth because, well, it would be a waste of time, but I would like Lambeth to come out and tell the truth and say why... They gave 10 grand if they said I was only there for a day because I have never heard of a council using public money to pay someone because they're sympathetic to him or her and that's what they've done to me. You know, and, well, I've no more to say about it. Simple. Before we get to the years of after the abuse and your prison and your addiction, I think one of the most powerful messages coming out of this, which may really help society, is you're showing abusers the harm that it caused, and hopefully they will think twice when they see this right. and they read your book. The other thing is, say someone is watching this in a foster home right now, a teenager who's getting abused, or even younger, and they feel stuck in that cycle that you were stuck in, the threats, the intimidation, the violence, what would you say to those people watching this? I, I would honestly say today, if, you, if it's happening to you and you can't speak to the authorities or the filth because you don't trust them, message me on Facebook because I will talk to anyone 24-7. I don't sleep, right? I lay awake, I may sleep an hour at night, but if I get a message to speak to someone and they're not taking the piss, and I will know very quickly if someone... 
I will talk to anybody who's been male or female who's going through this or has been through it, and I will tell them how I came out of it. Because you can come out of it. It took me over 60 years to tell my story. Don't leave it that long. Because if you do, as sure as God made green apples, if God exists, it will kill you. It will destroy you. And you might be alive, but inside you're dead. And that is not a nice feeling. You're going to get a lot of messages off the back of this and all of Mike's contact details in the description box below the video, his Facebook, all the means you can get in touch with him. All right, so in your story now, in the years we were going along, you said now you the abuse has stopped. Yeah. You're going into adulthood. You're working on ships. Yeah. And, but you've got this turmoil inside you. Yeah. And the drugs get involved. Oh, yeah. When was the first age that you got involved in drugs? At the nautical school, it was black bombers, as it happens. Which and means what? It was Europe. It, it was a speed. Right, it was the days of the pills, Purple Arts. And I used to fuck off to the Tiles Club. This was in the lunatic days of free love, the festivals, you know. I got turned on to Leonard Cohen in 67 at the oh, Isle of Wight. Everybody I knows. have everything, Leonard Cohen. I mean, my song, right, the story of my life with Leonard Cohen, which we played at my fucking funeral, is a partisan. As we poured across the water, we were cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. An old lady gave us shelter, you know, and that is my song. And as the curtains close, it's going to be closing time. They are... The, and I knocked about... I lost... A very... I, my first love was a girl called Kim. Am I boring you? No, I'm not so I was clicking my neck. <laughs> and um, Kim, she's dead now, bless. And I loved her with such a fucking passion. We lived together, but my in Bristol, but my chaotic lifestyle just drove me, drove us apart. I did try to find God at one stage. And um, that led me to a bit of credit card theft. <laughs> well, I was going to go on a ship called the Logos, Operation Mobilization. And that didn't work. I met and married a nurse, my first marriage. I'll just call her Helen for now. She was religious. Her parents were quite wealthy. I discovered that her brother had been shagging her since she was 13 and had given her a child. Mm. I couldn't handle that. And the parents said to me, but God forgave her. Well, fuck God. I'm sorry. And he got away with that. The child was adopted. Right? And that blew my mind. Crackers. Completely crackers. Today... She is very, very, very respectable and nobody has a clue about what happened. And it did, it did enter my mind to take revenge for a long, long time. But then why destroy lives? 
she made a mistake. The brother, he was 18 at the time. You know, they should have put him, put him down, but they didn't. They said, oh, the Lord forgave him. He gave, he gave his life to the Lord. Yeah, right. You know, I gave my ass to fucking the Lord a few times with the old priests and what have you, but I didn't give it, it was taken. But puts a whole new slant on Holy Communion, I'll tell you. But, you know, it, it drove me round the bend. And I was just hell-bent on destroying people. And it wasn't nice. You know, I'd go to sea fishing. I loved the deep water fishing, Iceland, the White Sea. But then I'd get pissed off. There, there was no concentration there. No stickability, you know, and it was crazy. And I married the mother of my son and we talk now. We've been apart, oh, over 30 years. You know, I just said to her one day, I'm going out and I didn't come back. You know, and my, my son was tiny. That hurt her. And it was only until sort of the last 15 years that it really dawned on me how much I'd hurt her. You know, although she's been with the same guy for many, many years, and um, but it hurt my son. It hurt him badly. And um, as I say, he's in jail for killing someone over 40 quids worth of fucking drugs. Yeah, and um, it, it's frightening. And I can never make amends for that. You know, and there's other girls that I lived with and um, destroyed them. One I lived with that I thought the absolute world, but stole from her and fucked off and blew it. You know, because... I couldn't trust myself. I, I really... Uh, the last one lives in Scotland who... She was a bit more cuter than the rest. You know, a Glaswegian, blue nose, who had the measure of me. But we're the best of friends now who would help me in the event that I need anything. And that's nice. And then, of course... I met George, and and probably when I met Georgie, I was in the worst, worst state my mind has ever been. I was murderous, very. I was violent, very. And I saw her, the, the minute I saw her, and my words to her on the first morning, Eight o'clock, Parkwood Hospital, Blackpool, psychiatric hospital. And I walked out at eight o'clock in the morning to have a fag, and she was out there. And I said, hello, shit the bed, do you want a fag? And I gave her a fag, and we've been together ever since. I used to ring her up when I got out and she was still in. I used to ring her out and sing to her down a bloody phone, you know, and... We laugh, and there, there is joy there. Huge, huge, 
she's my soulmate. She is, <coughs> she is my soul, my very soul. And she is the beat of my heart. You know, and we keep each other going. She is the fire for my engine. It's as simple as that. And from the moment I met her, I never had an urge to fall out off the pavement. And believe you me, I wasn't just in the gutter. I was in the fucking drain when I met her. And to get a foot out of the gutter is very, very difficult. You should know that, you know? He should know that more than most, right? It is a difficult thing, but if someone has that faith in you, that, in, and I don't know, that it's love. Some people find it through God, I didn't. You know what I mean? I, I tried, I did try, but um, it wasn't for me. And yeah, the, the past, I can't undo the past. You know, the jail bits, I went to jail many, many, many times. Before we discuss the jail, you give us the full scope of all of your relationships. Well, um, um, described. Right after the abuse ended, how easy was it for you to have a relationship with a woman? You first tried to have a relationship with a, with a woman or a teenager or how old you were, someone that was your age? Well, the first one was Kim. Okay. And it was in Bristol. And I'd entered, I used to go to the Locarno, the Mecca Locarnos, right, in Bristol. And they used to have groups on. And I, I was a great, great, soul fan, right? I'm talking Tamla Motown had just started, right? The Four Tops. But my favourite band was Geno Washington and the Ram Jam Band, right? And when I was at Paulie's Head uh, at the Nash, the Nautical School, I used to sometimes fuck off to London and spend a Saturday night in the Tiles Club on Oxford Street or the Flamingo you know, places like that, the marquee, where the good bands were. And Gino Washington was coming to the Mecca in Bristol with the Ram Jam Band and Jimmy James and the Vagabonds. And there was a competition to meet him. But the com competition was, I suppose today, it's the equivalent of a karaoke. So I entered it and I thought, I'm going to do the song Sarah, right, which I did. The Doris Day song, but Gino Washington had released it as a soul song, a brilliant, brilliant song. <laughs> and I sung it on stage. Now, I was knocking off a Polish girl at the time. I hadn't quite got to the stage of getting into her drawers, right? Don't know if I ever would have done. But this vision blonde vision. After I'd done it, I won the competition and the, co the ticket was two prize was two tickets to meet Gino, right? And it, Kim, who I didn't know, she came up 
and she flung her arms round and she said to me, they called me Tojo in them days, believe it or not, because some bloody idiot, Alan Warren, right, who said I look Japanese, <laughs> she said, Tojo, you were brilliant. And I thought, I'm having you. And we got together. And we stayed together for a long time. And I think that's where I became, got into the idea, I like this show business, Lark. You know what I mean? And I wanted people to respect me, to recognise me, and do their thing with me. And, but I blew it. I blew it with her. I didn't treat her right. We were together a long time. But I'll, I'll never remember, forget, she introduced me to her mother, took me to meet her mother. And her mother took one look at me and she said, Bobby, because her name was Roberta Kim. I won't tell you her second name. She said, you can't be with him. He's a, use the N-word, right? And I don't know, that put a big chip on my shoulder, a huge chip, because I'm not black. Spick, I can go there because Spicks are exotic. I'm an exotic person, you know? And yeah, it took a long, long time and I stayed clear. And when I did get girlfriends, I used them purely and simply for sex, no other reason. So if you've been abused and you're starting out to have relationships with girls in a normal way, you couldn't. What's the psychological blockages that are arising there? Don't know. I, I it just, what problems manifesting in your mind to go from this years of I abuse to like having a normal sex life with a I woman? I was really scared that my past would rear its ugly little head. You know, and. I was always looking over my shoulder, wherever I went, because it's strange, wherever you go in this world, you will meet someone from your past. But now they're all dead, you see, so it don't matter. Did the worlds collide in your younger years? Once or twice. And what were those situations? I ran. I ran, immediately. Didn't matter what I had, I would leave it and just walk away. Did you get the urge to kill your abusers as you got older? Many times, I got the urge very to kill my mother. I blamed her. In fact, when I was 30, I searched and searched. And I discovered that she was married. She had a family. And her and her husband had a hardware shop in Battersea. And I went three, four times. Never ever spoke a word. No, th three times. On the third time, and I looked at her, I knew. I knew. The third time, and I'm totally, totally, today, ashamed of what happened. She said, can I help you, sir? And I just looked at her, I said, you couldn't 30 years ago, so I don't suppose you can now, and walked out. Did she know right then? Oh, I think she did. I think she did. But 
I really wanted to kill her. I had gone with the intention that if this woman admitted that she was my mother, then she was going to be killed. But afterwards, not immediately, afterwards, I was very thankful myself that I hadn't. And I was more thankful that I hadn't destroyed her family. She had a life. And at the end of the day, after the war, times were hard. I didn't care that she'd been a prostitute. That didn't worry me. The records call her a good time girl, you know. It didn't worry me. What hurt is she walked away from us in the hospital. That really stung. Because I'd always dreamt of being married, having kids who would have their own children, you know, and she'd be a grandma. I'd be a granddad, you know. Everybody dreams of that. Didn't work for me that like that. But at the same time, you know, by marrying again and having a family with her husband, she'd made her own peace. She'd got her peace. You know, no one knows the reason that she let, she couldn't cope maybe. You know, I don't know. The old man, if I had ever found him, he was dead. So I would have killed him. There's no doubt about that. And I would not have batted an eyelid about doing it. I mean, today, I talk to my son. He rings me up from the jail and I send him money. I don't send him lots because he gets himself into debt with drugs and I'm not going to pay for his fucking drugs in the jail. You know, not for him or for anyone else. But we, we, we do talk, which is something. You know, and... Um, he kind of understands the situation, I hope. But, oh yeah, my father, yeah. I'm curious about something then. It sounds like the drive to kill your parents was stronger than the drive to kill your abusers. Is that so? And if that is so, was the pain of abandonment worse than the psychological torment of what you went through with the abusers? That's a hard question. That is a very... Hard question. It was down to the abandonment that this happened, you know? If, and it's a big if, they'd had a home, if they had brought us up, the three of us, I would have had a sister and a brother. I would have been an uncle right? I would have had a family. I dare say that I would not have been in the position that I found myself in, right? And things might have been different. But I'm a firm believer that the minute the old swimmer hits the egg, your path is laid out. You might deviate off it, but you'll always come back on it. And I do believe today that I am intelligent enough 
and success, uh, not successful enough, strong enough to have been a successful person for my life. Today, all I have, which ideally for me is the best, I have Georgie, right? I owe nobody no money. I went bankrupt and I've just finished paying off that bankruptcy and came out of it, right, with Georgie's help, right? And I'm extremely, extremely proud of myself. But, I, and I, I became a ship's master, right? But I do believe that I would have had many, many more years of success. And by success, I don't mean becoming a multi-millionaire, but I would have had my own home. I would have had children, you know, that I loved and nurtured. And by flinging me into care, that was taken away from me. And I hate them for that. And hatred is an awful thing to have. It eats you. It consumes you, you know. But today I don't hate. The abusers, wherever they are, they're paying a price. You know, one day when I go down to Beasel Bub's kitchen, I might be able to pour boiling oil over them or whatever, because I certainly ain't going up there. Not that I want to. You know, my, my idea of the afterlife... I want to swan about and all the fuckers I don't like, I want to sit on the end of the bed and when they just get into the vinegar stroke, take the vinegar off them. Thank you very much. You know, metaphorically speaking. But I can die knowing that I paid my dues. And I'm happy. Extremely happy with Georgie with nothing. Where I once urgently wanted thousands of pounds in me pocket and be Jack the lad, wear the mohair suits and all that bollocks. Not anymore. Don't interest me. What do you say the happiness is in your heart and what your thoughts make it? In my heart and my head now. I'm extremely, extremely happy and I'm proud of who I am and what I became. Not proud of the things I've done. I don't Regret a thing, but I don't say I would do it all the same, again, the same way, because I wouldn't. But everything that happened was out of my control. You know, and when you're out of control and you have no control, you're fucked. You know, physically and mentally. And I came out of that, you know, and... The respect that people have for me now, today, I earned that. It wasn't given to me, you know. I earned it. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that the friends I have today are friends because of who I am today. There's no false friends there. And I... I hate paedophiles with a passion but at the same time I do not like the trend that's become today of the paedophile hunters because it frightens me that one day well it's already happened a guy was killed who was totally innocent 
because some fucker said he was a nonce. You know? And that worries me. We have a police force and we have to trust them, whether we like it or not. And I've got a pal who's a very, very good pal who knows my history, right? In fact, it was his wife who told me to go to the police and start all this bollocks off, right? Which I did a few years ago. Who is my pal? And he comes to my home and he will drink my beer in my house. We meet in the pub and we'll drink, you know, and I'm proud of that, very proud of it. You know, and I'm proud that people can come up and go, oh, Tarika, you are such an ass," And they do, you know, and they laugh. And I can smile. You know, at night, I will admit, with this, this stroke has really done me in. I, I can't see an end. At, and at night, I, I find myself in floods of tears. But then, hold up, I've still got a voice. A month ago, I didn't have that, I was just a dribbling idiot, <laughs> laid on a bed, you know what I mean, like a bit of fish. But I've still got a voice. I've still got Georgie, right? And I've still got the power to tell stories about the enemas they have to give me and the bedpans. Oh, yeah, we laugh about it, honestly. And people like that. And that's not a bad thing, you know. You have to tell the enema story now, because otherwise on YouTube they'll be like, why didn't you ask him what the enema story is? No, have a, go on my timeline, you'll see it, and then... It's on your Facebook. Yeah, and then you can put it up. I discovered, right, I love bloody... Um, Billy Connolly, and he once said, when he was being interviewed, that, that oh, I don't know where it is. It's all right, we'll, we'll find it. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll try and include it, it in the video. It is, it's there, and he once said, he watches life, and he sees things happen. So he tells a story, but he builds it up, you know, it, it, with with the enema, the first one, I just it, I now know what the Titanic felt like when it hit the fucking iceberg, you know, and suddenly I was awash with and it, it it's laughable and it that was the bedpan. No. I want to ask a question while I just look at this simultaneously, just keep this going. Right. You said that you hate paedophiles. Yep. What do you think about people like Prince Andrew being in the news recently? Well, I don't believe in a royal family the way it is, right? But I doubt very, very much if there's anybody of our age, and he's not far off my age, who has not slept with a 17-year-old, be it they were 20 years old when it happened. And, all right, 17 is illegal in the States, but I've slept with 17-year-olds. 
you know. When, when you were a teenager? I, I, yeah. I don't like the idea that this Epstein, I think that's wrong. And I think Andrew knew full well what was going on, right? The fact that he goes to say, I can't be with you, yet spends four days in the house. But bear in mind that the royals are a bunch of inbreds anyway, right? There's not a Brit amongst them, for starters. You've got Phil the Greek, right? The old man, an idiot, a complete bumbling idiot. You've got old Charlie boy who talks to the bloody trees, right? I used to do that when I was on acid. And it's crazy. And you've got Harry. Well, what can you say about Harry? His name's Hewitt. I mean, let's be right. And they're getting millions of pounds of taxpayers' money. Well, if you're getting that sort of wedge, then you should be able to behave yourself, you know. But after my life, who am I to say, you know? Did you like Princess Di? Was used, weren't you? A mills cow, no more, no less. Murdered. End. And, but... She was knocking off a bloody Muslim, which doesn't go well. You've got to ask yourself why one fired gets British citizenship and the other one doesn't. The brother doesn't. You know, the whole... Do we really need a royal family like that? A whole lot of them. Do we? How many houses do, do you want? And you're paying for that as a taxpayer. And that's lunacy. And... No. Have you watched Prince Andrew's interview on the BBC? Car crash. An absolute car crash. But he's so arrogant. I mean, bear in mind, they say, oh, the Falkland hero. No, he fucking wasn't. He wasn't a decoy pilot at all. He was a fucking postman flying off HMS Vincible outside the 200-mile zone. No more, no less. And I find it embarrassing that it's been used all this Andrew lot, to take the derry off the general election. And we've got a halfwit in Corbyn wanting to give the country away. To um, become something like Venezuela. You know, this is a man who cohorts with terrorists, for Christ's sake, of every description. I would like to know, since when Hamas, a prescribed terrorist organisation have been our friends. I just interviewed a guy, a loyalist paramilitary gunrunner who was involved in a plot to assassinate Corbyn. Well, he should have succeeded. He should have succeeded. This is a man who attended the funeral of IRA killers. This is the man who invited a known terrorist to the Houses of Parliament after Maggie Thatcher was blown up. Now, I had no love for her either. But let's get something in perspective here. He wasn't trying to broker peace. Everything he does and has done is for his own benefit. This is a man whose wife, right, gets the fair trade coffee. Millionaire, right? But they're paying the workers 69 pence for every £10 she earns. And that's right. This is a man who wants to collapse this fucking country. On the, sub- on the subject of uh, high-profile pedos, then, what about the Catholic Church? And they're supposedly one of the biggest rings in the world. And did that, how prolific was their abuse with you? But, 
you, you've got to look into the Freemasonry. You know, you, the Catholics have a Mason's Lodge, yet they're not supposed to. The Masons don't accept Catholics, or never used to. Yet, God's banker found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge, right, suicide. How the fucking hell did he get under there to hang himself in the first place? It's a nonsense. The whole world is corrupt right now. And the more corrupt you are, the more corrupt you want to become. And that is honestly how I see it. It's lunacy. And I'm glad that I'm coming, my life is coming to an end because I don't see a future in this country as it is at the moment for the children of tomorrow. And now you've got a 16-year-old fuckwit, Greta Grunberg, screeching about climate change, right, and how we've failed her. Excuse me? She's just fucking crossed the Atlantic on a big fuck-off 450 million pound motor yacht. And she's screaming about climate change? When do these thick bastards realise that the world has done its full circle and we're going back to the Ice Age and it'll come back round again to the heat? You know, not in our time, but in years to come. And they don't seem to understand this. They wanted to give her a Nobel Prize, a 16-year-old. This is the kind of girl, Corbyn, and this fucker, Begum. Let's give the 16-year-olds the vote. They're sensible, grown-up young adults. Oh, let's get her back. She's 16-year-old. She didn't know what she was doing. This is Corbyn. Make your mind up, kid. You know. And the guy who was gun-running for the loyalists... He would have done the world a favour by taking this fucking idiot out. That is my view. I know it's not a view that many people will share, right? But if he gets into power, we are finished, all of us. Going back to your arrests then, what was the first thing you arrested for that sent you to prison? Um... Fraud. Fraud? Oh, I was a dab end at counterfeiting. How old? I got sent to Ballstall for um, fraud. Portland Ballstall. So you were a teenager? Yeah. And and it continued. It was always... What, what were you frauding? Postal orders. Making them? Checks. Making fake ones? No, signing them. Travellers' checks. Where did you source the paper? I couldn't possibly tell you that. But we earned a lot of money. What did you do with the money? Blew it. Drugs? Drugs, sex, rock and roll, you know, the life. If I earned a thousand quid, which was a lot of money, that lasted a weekend. How did you get caught? Mistakes. Too cocky. You know, arguing with, with the um, American and <laughs> Express travellers checks. It was arguing with a fucking receptionist. You know, and I used to counterfeit notes, 
20-pound notes, lots of them. And have a look. Look at me today, right? I looked even rougher in them days. And one of the big, I was a scam artist, and I suppose in a way I do, I shouldn't have done it. I cost a bank manager the sack. She thought I was a rock star. I'd stolen a Rolls Royce. <laughs> a shadow one, seriously. And showed up at the bank. And showed up at the bank, <laughs> curly hair, and this old girl, bank manager, she was in her 50s, and I wooed her, and I shagged her, and I persuaded her that I wanted a quarter of a million pound what? to buy a hotel. What? And it, this is in the days when the bank managers could sanction this kind of stuff. And she did. And I dumped her like a hot cake. But then me bottle dropped. What the fuck was I going to do with a quarter of a million pound? But she realised what I'd done and called the filth. Now, I never, ever pleaded not guilty. If I was caught, banged to rights, I didn't go, oh, it's a fair cop. You know, don't get me wrong, but I'd learned very, very quickly, and I smoked, that if you wanted a smoke and a cup of tea, you cooperate with the old Bill. Don't fuck him about, because he'll give you as many smokes and as many cups of tea as you fucking want. And the only judge who ever astounded me was Melford Stevens. Did the bank get bastard. the money back? Oh, yeah. Okay. Melford Stevens. I didn't have it in cold cash. Right. I wrote my story, right? The forerunner to this. 480 full scat pages in longhand. And I said, listen, it was for a fraud, right? I said, before you send me down, sir, I said, I'd like to read you, like you to read this. So he said, okay. Reminded me in custody for a month and in Brixton and in them days you could have meals brought in right and half a fucking bottle of wine or a pint of beer right and I had some soppy bird fucking doing this for me bringing me a fucking meal every day and um, when I went back to court Melford I'll never forget him Melford Stevens he looked at me And if I remember right, he said, I have read this tragic document. Five years taken down. I looked at him and the screw said to me, come on, son. I said, you'll have to let me sit down a minute. I said, five years. Have I heard right there? And he said, yeah. But he he weren't supposed to do this. I said, I'm expecting 12 months. <laughs> this tragic document, that's what he called it. This tragic document. And I never got it back. <laughs> and the screw took me down. It was at the Bailey. right? And the cells under the Bailey. You could just about hold your hands out like that either side of just a bench. And... The screw gave me a fag. 
He said, I'll get you a cup of tea. I said, a cup of fucking tea? I said, you need to get a doctor here. I said, some shit house paper. <laughs> and that was it. I went on strike in the jail, hunger strike. I fucking near on killed myself in Blunderston. I was innocent. In fact, it was the only time I got, got a lagging for a year. It was the only time I'd ever pleaded not guilty. I'd been living with a woman in Ramsgate and I'd spun her a lie. She thought I was a fucking lighthouse keeper on leave, right? Because hint of respectability, you know? And she owned a guest house and I thought this is coming on top. And I said, can I borrow your car? She said, yeah, it, she had a Peugeot like a state thing, station wagon. And I took the money out of her pot, what she'd taken from the bed and breakfast, and two opals and a couple of sovereigns. And I fucked off, right? I pawned them in a shop in Blackpool. I drove up to Blackpool and I pawned them and I got for what was in them days a lot of money. And I went to a nightclub, they were doing a charity do. And I give them three quarters of the money for the charity. And then I fucked off down, left the car on a car park and fucked off down to Bournemouth where I got caught, right? Because I had no money in a bed and breakfast. And I was charged with theft. And I said, look, theft, I was a great reader of Stone's Justice's manual. A big, big reader of it. And Book of Criminal Pleadings. To be convicted of theft, you have to permanently deprive. Right? And I said, I pawned them. Therefore, I did not permanently deprive. I intended to go back to get them. And um, I was found guilty. And I got a lag in for that. And I thought, fuck you. And I went to Blunderstone Prison. And I went on hunger strike and refused liquids. Right? Within 10 days, they had me in the James Paget Hospital because I was dying. And they called, God's honest truth, they called my son, he was a little boy then, and his mother, Jane, and her son, who was born a different father, but I was with her when she was pregnant. Right, I took him as my own. They brought them to the hospital to try and persuade me to accept liquids. And they used to put peel an orange and put it on the table beside me to try and get their buds going. And I came within a whisker of fucking dying. And it kind of changed the outlook a little bit. And this was the days before fucking Bobby Sands and all that nonsense. And, um, you know, I was a lunatic, a fucking idiot. And life meant nothing, my life really didn't mean anything. 
What were the prison conditions like back then? Um, well, I used to go behind the door. Lockdown? Yeah. I, I would refuse to work. I would refuse to cooperate. I told you every day. For, they sent me the cold in, Lee. Right? It was different. You could have a radio. If you were doing three years, right, and you'd done 12 months, there was no parole like now. You had to do two-thirds. You could have a portable radio, right? As long as it was just medium long wave. If you were doing five years and you'd done a third of it, you could have a budgie. I had two budgies, tart and geezer, in me cell, right? But they used, if you were a naughty boy, they used to take it off you. And I had some scintillating conversations with two budgies, let me tell you. <laughs> Honestly. And it's strange the things you do, but I was an avid reader. I got, I studied hard at Exeter. When I was down there, there was a governor, Scarface, right? He had no face. Brown was his name. He'd been blown up. He was one of McGindo's guinea pigs, right? Who was a pure bastard, an absolute ass. But I told him quite straight. I said, you ain't going to frighten me with your ugly fucking mug. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to cooperate with you either. And we, we came to a status quo. I mean, today, I would not want to go to prison today. But I've, I've not been in trouble for over 20 years. Did the guards beat the shit out of you when you didn't cooperate? No. No. I'll tell you, when I was at Blunderston, there was a prison officer there. I think he might be dead now, but remember Terry Butcher, who played for England, footballer? Oh, oh, he played, it was a bloody good footballer. His father was a senior prison officer on the chokey, and he was nothing but a gentleman. And I used to talk football to him because Terry was playing then for England and Ipswich and, and he was a pure gentleman and he used to tell me how, because I said to him one day, I said, when they get awarded their caps, do they award them in the dressing room or for each match? He said, oh, no, no. He said, they come in a fucking jiffy bag. I went, oh, and he brought one in to show me, you know, and he used to bring me, give me his paper after he'd read it, slide it under the door. And he used to say to me, why are you a cunt? And I just go, well, you know, goes with the territory, I quite like it. If I wasn't, you'd have me on the wing. But I used to, when I was doing mailbags, eight to the inch, eight stitches to the inch, I used to do them in a the cell, I mean, occupy my mind. And you'd get the full wages, which meant I could have an ounce of tobacco. You know what I mean? And tea bags. But... If someone got on my fucking nerves, when the doors were unlocked in the morning, they were getting a jug full of boiling water and sugar straight in a fucking dial. No ifs, no buts. Because that was the only way to deal with people. Otherwise, you got bullied. And I, I tried to bully you. Only the once. What happened in that situation? The fellow got a fucking jug of boiling water at seven o'clock in the morning over his face while he was still in bed. And I just slammed his door shut and held my hand up on the buzzer so he couldn't put the flag down. How do you know he was going to bully you? He tried it. What did he do? Told me. 
that he was having my radio and my watch. And no, he wasn't. And, you know, he, he said to me, I was locked in my cell and he was going to his and he just said to me, I'm having you in the morning. Oh, are you now? Well, in them days, you could go down and get boiling water to make your tea. And it used, used to have big white plastic jugs, elder gallon. And I put two pounds of sugar in it, my own sugar, which I'd bought. Give it a quick stir, half a tin of fucking golden syrup, which I'd brought from the canteen. His door was opened, he's still in his bed, snoring like a fucking warthog. And I just put the water straight over his face. He's screaming like a banshee, can't open his eyes. What does the sugar do? Think napalm. That's what it does. Melts your face off? Yeah, just all the skin. Fucking right. It's a very painful thing to do. You didn't bully anyone else. You know, it's a, it's a skin graft job. You didn't bully anyone else. And I didn't get done for it because no one knew. Who's going to admit that I'd done it to him? No one. Were the crazy in prison around this time or were they looked up at by the London criminal community? Were they respected? No, they... They were in the scrubs. And, um... I was in Cat A prisons, right? Quite a few of them. But I can honestly say I never saw any homosexual activity, right? At all. I remember we had a guy <laughs> from South End who said he was going to be a woman. And he used to, he made a curtain as a dress. We used to take the piss out of him, right? And I said to him, listen, I can't remember his name. I said, you are going to be one ugly bird. I said, what are you going to do if you're dressed as a bird in South End and some airy-ass fucking lorry driver puts his hand up your freckle? And he said, I'm just going to tell him quite straight, I'm a fucking lesbian. <laughs> and... I met some characters. I met some very skilled people there. Very, very skilled people. And some very artistic people. You know what I mean? And What kind of skills? Artists. Carpentry. You know, they could make things out of nothing. Or do paintings that were sellable. Very sellable. You know, I, calligraphy. People who had talents they didn't know. And it wasn't like it is today. On a Saturday, we used to make our own hooch on a Saturday afternoon. The filthiest stuff you've ever... In fact, I'll tell you a little story. I was in Norwich Prison, right? And we'd made hooch in aluminium dustbins. And, and, and on Christmas Eve, my mate said to me, here, a gallon of hooch, this fucking hooch that was bubbling, Right? everything you could imagine in it. Lock the door. Now in them days, Christmas morning, the screw would open the door, give you three fags, a penguin, right? And, and a tangerine and go, Merry Christmas, right? And then you went down and you got a full fucking English breakfast, right? I drank this shit Christmas Eve. And 
I was having a conversation in fucking German, which I have never spoken, and understanding it. And this might sound crazy. Now, you had the crap in a bucket, right, in them days, single cell. And I needed a crap, right? And <laughs> I don't drug off of this shit. And so I put the chair on its back, put the bucket between the legs, so I can sit on the back of the chair, right against the wall. The thing can't slide. Now I used to demand pajamas in the jail, just to fuck them up. Bent down, got me trousers down, and pebble dashed the fucking wall. <laughs> and I'm so fucking drunk, right? And I just go back to bed. In the morning, the jug, this shit, had virtually melted the jug. And the stench of homemade hooch was horrendous. And I'll never forget this. A black screw called Charles Innes, he's retired, probably dead now, smashing man, XLREF. He opened the door and he went, what the fuck, get them up. <laughs> And that was me Christmas Day. Yeah. But I can laugh about that. Have good laughs. You know what I mean? They wouldn't do that in today's day and age. You know? And they used, we used to play football against outside teams. And I want to finish on this because I'm tired, right? We were playing a game of football. And the referee, this was a cold in me. And the referee ruled one of the Colden Lee goals offside. And I watched the lad go up, march up to the referee. He said, referee, he said, that was a goal. And the referee said, no, no, he said, it's offside. And this fella just looked at him. He said, I'm in for a double murder and a third one make no fucking difference. That was a goal. <laughs> Game was abandoned immediately. But at the time... It's not a nice thing to do. But looking back on it, it's quite comical. Because what else could the referee do? The bloke was moved straight from the jail because of it. You know, it was constituted a threat. But I don't suppose for one minute he would have fucking attacked him for it. But it was comical. And if you ask me, do I regret any of it? No, I fucking don't. Wouldn't do it again. You know, and it's just my way of illustrating that it's not all doom and gloom. There's been fun, lots of it. You know what I mean? And I hope people see this and they can see that I've got a sense of humour. All right, it might be slightly warped. We love your and sense of humour. Might be off the wall, but have a look. Smile. <laughs> and I smile. And I can laugh and I can say thank you. You know, it hasn't been great, but it hasn't all been bad either. And the good, the last 12 years of happiness has far, far outweighed the shit that I went through. And if I can do it, so can anyone else. Wow.
It's as simple as that. What a powerful message to finish on. Your positive energy is just fill this room. And if you can go through the darkness that you went through and come out like this, that gives people hope all over the world who are suffering and going through hardship and especially victims of abuse. Is there anything else you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? If you want the rest of Mike's story, it's going to be in his book. And that's all in the description box below this. If you want to contact Mike, he's here, he doesn't sleep, he's available 24-7, he's on Facebook. All the links to contact him are below, so please contact him, please reach out. Anything else you would like to say uh, in conclusion? Yeah, if you can eat the shit that this hospital provides, you're doing all right. <laughs> no, it's doing this, has, it's been immense pleasure, an absolute pleasure, because... I've laughed, you know. There have been no tears this time. They've gone. I have laughed and there will be. I'm doing my full autobiography and that the title for that, the working title is Tales from the Bedpan and that will be coming out in the spring, I hope. But read my book. I make no money. You can get it, download it on Kindle and read it for free. Cost you nothing. If you want to buy a paperback version, cost you nine quid. I don't know what it costs in the States, probably more because Trump's mob are greedy little bastards. But read it because every bean goes to helping someone tell their story. And although I've laughed and joked for the last half an hour, there is an important message to be had from this. You can lift out of the gutter of abuse and you can become a nice person and I hope I come across as quite a decent nice person and if you've watched all of this then thank you it's been worthwhile in the comments below this please let us know what you felt about today's interview this is the first time I've had tears in my eyes like I've had today talking to Mike earlier so if anyone does put anything negative about Mike Wild man will be coming to your house to pay you a visit, so you better be careful what you say. Now, we love all your comments, and we love the fact that you guys have been subscribing like crazy. Huge thank you to all the new subs. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner of this video. Can I just say before we go? Yeah, keep going. Right. I'm in Clifton Hospital, right? I've had a, a stroke, a massive stroke. The left side doesn't work. I am dying, right? But... This hospital, the staff here, are wonderful, wonderful people. And they've allowed me to do this, which is something they don't do. And, yeah, a big, massive thank you to the girls who every day clean me up. And it's, I've looked forward all my life to bed baths, and now they come along three a day, and I can't enjoy them. But a great, the staff are fantastic from the cleaners to the hierarchy. And yeah, my heart, my love goes to them. So thank them as well, because they've allowed me to do this. And a huge thank you to our cameramen today, yeah. James and Jamie. And they've come all the way from London. We're up in Blackpool, that's quite far away from London. And we're able to record these with professional camera equipment and a professional cameraman Thanks to your donations and people have sent in money 
on Patreon, PayPal, just giving to those links in the description box. And a huge thank you to all the people who have donated to keep these podcasts coming at the quality production level these guys have done for us in here today. So we're looking forward to hearing all of your questions and comments. And take care out there. And go give me another hug, man. I can't get up, I'm afraid, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. Ah, thank wow, you. What a story. I like the suit. Don't need Brilliant. the jacket, and I'll check the inner pocket. They're <laughs> <laughs> breaking in. From M. Night Shyamalan, the visionary director who brought you Split. Your family must sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. We will ask three times for every no you give us. Billions will perish. This is delusional. Save your family. I'm on my family side. Or save humanity. Make a choice. Knock at the cabin. In cinemas February 3rd. Certificate 15. With TalkTalk, you can speed up and spend less on broadband in 2023. Out of contract on Superfast Fibre? Double your speed and save on average £125 over 18 months by upgrading to TalkTalk Full Fibre 150. That's just £29.95 a month plus no setup fees. Search TalkTalk Full Fibre for deals that make sense sense. TalkTalk. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023, subject to local availability. Average saving on full fibre 150 versus major competitors publicly available out of contract. Standard fibre 65 equivalent only on 21st October.